Hey guys, a couple weeks ago I had the incredible honor of sitting down with the former chief of staff of George Herbert Walker Bush. Gene Becker is the author of The Man I Knew, a book about H.W., as I like to informally refer to him as. She's a lovely woman. We had a great conversation. The book is well worth a read. Uh, I read it in Idaho last week. You won't be disappointed. You guys know that I'm a big fan of HW and uh, it was an incredible honor to sit down and talk to her. So here's the show. So let's, let's fire it up. I think I've got to start this off, uh, Gene, by telling you that I like to tell people that uh, I was George Herbert Walker Bush's <laughs> HW is easier for me to say uh, his biggest fan before he was, I think, uh, lionized in the last uh, several years by uh, other presidents that quite possibly couldn't fill his shoes in in a in a wide variety of reasons. But uh, I've been a big fan of this uh, this president, this man. Uh, I think if I could have voted for him, I wasn't of age yet. If I could have, I would have. Uh, and I, I really wish I could have seen, or at least I've, I, I wish America to, could have seen a second term. So I don't want to go too uh, gushy over um, over the former <laughs> president, but I'm a I'm a huge fan. And I think my my one of the things I was thinking about this morning as I was working out and I was listening to some of your interviews, um, the thing that used to that that has been the question that I've always wanted to ask somebody that's been really close to him is one of the most powerful and significant figures in American and international history. How did he manage his family? Because his family seems so tight and they seem like such good people. How did he manage his professional life and his personal life with his family? Because I see that so oftentimes that it's not done right. And it seems from the outside that they did this right. How did they do it? Evan, that's such a great question. Nobody has asked me that question yet. And I love that you did. You know, President Bush always said that the mantra he lived by was faith, family, and friends. That they were the most important things to him. And even when he was president, he never, ever forgot that. And he held his family very close. He made time for them when he was in the White House. Uh, you know, they would all gather at Camp David. They would all gather in Kennebunkport in the summertime. His son Marvin and his daughter Doro and their kids lived in Washington and were at the White House a lot. And that was of great comfort to him. But one of the things he did, Evan, and actually about 30, 20, well, 25 years ago, we, instead of writing a memoir, we issued a book of letters that mm -hmm. he wrote. He was an unbelievable letter writer. He's such a great writer, period. But even at his busiest times, he would write the most amazing letters to his kids and to his grandkids. Mm -hmm. And I put some of those letters in this book, The Man I Knew, uh, because they were just worth repeating. Right. But the name mm -hmm. of the letters book is All Best, 
And it really is his autobiography. We were able to tell his life story because the letters begin with all the letters he wrote his mom during World War II. Wow. He started writing these letters at age 18 when he went into the Navy. And um, so I, I would say that by writing these letters, even when they weren't in the same city, he knew how to stay in touch with them. And then, of course, later emails. Right. He loved. So, but he was a great family man. He was definitely the patriarch of this great family. It's it's interesting because as a as a patriarch of the family, and uh, I, I think he was at least from what I can gather, and you can you can answer uh, kind of in, in the best way that we can. But he seemed like such a warm uh, and funny person that <laughs> it never quite came through. It sometimes in the administration, I don't you know it's hard during press conferences and things like that. But it seemed like the image of him was really uh, contradictory to actually who he was, and I think. Uh, did you see that, I guess, as far as the development of his personality, not personality, but outside persona, that people started to actually understand who he was later, not necessarily during the yes. administration? And is that, do you think that's just common for presidents to be uh, uh, misrepresented or? You know? No, I think it's common of the greatest generation. Because right. I'll tell you somebody who's exactly like him is Senator Bob Dole. You know, Senator Dole became famous, is still famous, he's still with right. us, for speaking in the third yeah. person. He would refer to himself <laughs> in the third person. It's really hard for the greatest generation, for that generation. Um, they were taught to be modest. They were taught to be humble. Ms. President Bush talks a lot about his mm -hmm. mom and all of her do's and don'ts. And certainly one of them was, do not brag about right. yourself. And for those of us who followed, I'm a baby boomer and we get all sorts of bad strikes against <laughs> us. But for all, for all the generations that follow the greatest gener generation, and then you go into, into millennials and Xers and social media, and we've become sort of narcissistic, right. I think. And I, and I know one of the frustrations of President Bush's campaign teams is how he wasn't willing to, for example, to talk about being shot down during World mm -hmm. War II. He wasn't willing to talk about the fact that he and Mrs. Bush lost a daughter to leukemia. Right. Um, he didn't thought he should talk about issues and policy and, and, and not make it personal. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I wrote the book, Evan, is because I wanted America to really get to know the man. I mean, it's it's why I literally right. called the book The Man I Knew. Um, he was so funny and so personal and had such a big heart. And I and I don't blame the media for missing that story. Right. I blame him. <laughs> and there's there's a couple of journalists. Uh, I actually just heard from one the other day, Greta Van Susteren, um, my Jamie Gangal, who's now at CNN. Uh, who who interviewed him quite a bit over the years, and they really loved him and they respected him. But Greta emailed me the other day and said he was the worst interview ever because <laughs> you could never get him to open up and be personal. Right. 
So that's why I wrote the book, just so people could see that amazing personal side of him. And he's uh, he's always, I, I think, from my perspective, when uh, I've been doing you know a lot of research, I guess uh, throughout the years, just based on personal interest, because I'm I'm really interested in leadership and management and how to how to live a fulfilling life. And uh, he was one of the people that I really focused in on. And it wasn't until after his administration that I focused in on. I said, "Wow, this guy." really had a lot of things I think figured out when you think about family and friends and faith and focusing on, he wasn't necessarily from the outsider's perspective. He wasn't consumed with trying to be a leader. He was just a leader. And right. I think. Well, you really, you really had him figured out, Evan. You, you got him. You were ahead of your time. <laughs> You definitely, I love, you really figured him out and who he was. I love that. I really love that. And I, I interrupted you and I feel bad about that, but I just had to say, I love how you had him figured out. And one of the reasons, another reason why I wrote the book and, and actually it sort of occurred to me while I was writing the book, uh, you talked about looking for examples yeah. on how to live yeah. life realized as I was writing this book, he left us a blueprint on how to live a good life. I, you know, when people die, they'll sometimes say, oh, what a life well lived. Well, that was said about him 2.0. And really he left us a blueprint on how how to do that by example. He certainly led by example, but in the book, there's a number of letters and memos and there's a great, great list of 10 pieces of advice for young people. Someone asked him, if you want to give young people advice today on how on life, what would you say? Oh my gosh, I love that list. It's 10 short pieces of advice. And as I've been saying in my interviews, if everybody would follow those 10 pieces of advice, we would be a better, we would be a better society. I, I, I've I've always kind of looked at this in in uh, from that perspective because of the way that in where really where I kind of caught it was the way that um, uh, George Bush would interact like that's where it started to kind of get this open up the door because he was way more personal on camera obviously he would open up in interviews and the things that he would talk about about his dad and the way that he would talk about with such reverence such. Uh, uh, respect as to who the man was. And then obviously with other children that went into politics and they're giving so much back to America on a regular basis. Uh, it, it was interesting to me that this, this man could do that. And one of the thoughts that I had was who were his influences? How did, how did he uh, template or develop that? And if you had any insight into, was it, was it Prescott? Was it his father? Was it his mother? Yeah. So it was Prescott. How did, how did he talk about was, Prescott? If you can talk about that, like how did he talk about his mother and father? Um, and there's not, a, I will warn you, there's not a lot of that in okay. this book. Uh, Cause my book really focuses on his post-presidency there's certainly a lot of that in, in the letters yeah. book, All the Best. Uh, so Prescott Bush uh, was a Wall Street businessman, oh. went on to become a U.S. senator from Connecticut. 
And he talked very openly. He died fairly young. He died in his 70s of cancer. But what President Bush talked about his dad, uh, he, he had a servant's yeah. heart, which is what, of course, President Bush had. His dad was one of the founders of the USO, yeah. for example. And President Bush wrote in a letter that his dad would take the long train ride home from New York City to Greenwich, Connecticut. And, and he was, I think it was the town, I can't remember what it was called in Greenwich, Connecticut, but he was basically head of the town mm-hmm. council. And, and President Bush said, instead of sitting home and having a martini and reading the newspaper, which he really wanted to do, there were many nights that he had to go to a town meeting and hear people complain about garbage. <laughs> right. But he said that he learned a lot from watching his dad give back to the community and, and then to get into the game and run for the U.S. Senate uh, his dad got into some controversy. He was very anti-Joe McCarthy. He thought Joe McCarthy was sort of a nut and very strong, out very strong against him when that wasn't very a popular thing right. to do. And I think President Bush learned a lot from watching his dad uh, do, this is going to sound so simple, but sometimes we forget this, that his dad did what he thought was right. right. Not always what maybe was politically popular, but just what was right. His mom, on the other hand, was the one who taught him uh, not to be a braggadocio. Mm. That was one of her favorite terms. President Bush would uh, quote her saying that. She one time called him when he was president and chewed him out because she was watching him on TV and he was walking in front of Mrs. Bush. <laughs> and his mom called him and said, George, do not walk in front of Barbara. That's so rude. Well, he's the president of the United right. States. You know, so his mom is the one, I think, where he learned just good old-fashioned courtesy, common sense, um, good manners. Right. And I think a lot of the the ten, the the ten, the the rules the 10 rules that he wrote for young people, which we have time. I would, I would love to read them I would for love you. to hear those. I would absolutely love to. Can I read them? Should I read them Please. right now? Um, they're just priceless. And even though, and he wrote them for kids, but yeah, we all need to pay attention to these. Okay. okay. Here they are. Number one, don't get down when your life takes a bad turn. Out of adversity comes challenge and often success. Number two, don't blame others for your setbacks. Number three, when things go well, always give credit to others. Number four, don't talk all the time. I love that one. (laughs) Listen, Listen to your friends and mentors and learn from others. Number five, don't brag about yourself. Let others point out your virtues and your strong points. Number six, give someone else a hand. When a friend is hurting, get friend that you care. Number seven, nobody likes an overbearing big shot. <laughs> Number eight, as you succeed, be kind to people. 
Thank those who help you along the way. Number nine, don't be afraid to shed a tear when your heart is broken because a friend is hurting. Number 10, say your prayers. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's gold. That is absolutely gold. It's just classic. Yeah. It's classic. And you know, his very first point out of adversity, don't get down when things don't go well. Out of adversity can come success. This is a man, Evan, who had a lot of speed bumps in life. Shot down when he was 20 years old in World War II. Both of his crew members died. It's a very life-defining, obviously, moment for him. He and Mrs. Bush lost their daughter to leukemia. He had a couple of ups and downs in politics. The biggest one, of course, being losing the election in 1992. And he ended his life in a wheelchair. He had Parkinson's disease, and that was really hard. And I watched him, his resiliency on those last two, losing the election and going into the wheelchair, and just watching him deal with those. I know I'm a better person. From watching him, was he sad? Absolutely. Did he have to do a little bit of what I call licking his wounds? Yes. And then he decided, okay, um, let's move on. Life is is short and life is meant to be lived with joy and purpose. And let's just move on. And what a great life lesson. Yeah. When did he find out that he had Parkinson's? When did that diagnosis, what year was that? Um, He probably, and I actually marked something, uh, that I thought your viewers in particular might enjoy. Uh, He was diagnosed with Parkinson's uh, probably 2009, 2010, I think. I wrote an email. I I think you have a lot of hunters who probably watch you. I wrote this email to my sisters in November, 2007. It's very short. I, it, this is this is the the last chapter called the long journey home, and it's about his aging, about his Parkinson's, and about his funeral. And I wrote this in, and I'm, I'm I've been talking about how we've been noticing that he was slowing down. He had not been diagnosed with Parkinson's yet, but he was he was walking with a limp. Uh, he was he had really slowed down a lot. I emailed my sisters in November 2007 that although President Bush's body was 83, his spirit was 65, and that sometimes was problematic. Today, he is going hunting, the first trip of the season. He's so unstable on his feet, and he confessed to me that he's slightly afraid of getting shot. (laughs) He says, if you wobble out there, Gene, you might fall in the path of another hunter. He was dead serious, and yet he has no intention of not going. He just sort of said it matter of fact. I might get shot today, Gene. Well, okay, then. These Texans are weird. (laughs) That's, that's That's what I wrote to my sisters. But, you know, Evan... That do I think he was crazy to go hunting when he admitted to me that he might fall down and but he wasn't gonna stop. He wanted to go hunting. He loved hunting. And he hunted until he absolutely couldn't anymore. 
But that was just that whole email. The reason I put it in is because it's so part of who he is, where he just matter of factly said to me, yeah, I might get shot today, right. Gene. And I'm like, okay, sure. That's a, so this is a good, this is a good segue because um, I know that you're from Missouri and uh, so HW, uh, and I, I, not with, with the greatest amount of respect, uh, Bush senior HW, however we want to frame it, uh, is he knew a friend of mine, his name is Johnny Morris, another prominent Missouri. And so one of my favorite photos that Johnny (laughs) has is a picture of him fishing in, uh, in a, in, in a, like bass boat one, basically, which is the presidential bass boat. And it's in the museum in Springfield or in uh, the aquarium slash uh, the, the history, or he's got a fishing museum and an aquarium right there. And he's got this big picture mm-hmm. and Johnny has so much respect for the man uh, what what I brought it up a, a couple of years ago is like he absolutely is one of my favorite presidents. Did you ever have a chance to meet him? And he's like Evan. He was one of my favorite people. They were great friends, yeah. great great friends. There, President Bush, the mutual uh, they had a mutual admiration right. society. Uh, they did a lot of fishing together, but President Bush also loved how much Johnny Morris has done for uh, sports, for uh, conservation. One of his favorite things that uh, Johnny Morris has done is to help teach particularly uh, underprivileged children the joy of fishing. That they actually did brought, you know, brought fishing to to a group of people who maybe would have never been able to fish before. And they did this wonderful event at President Bush's library, uh, and which is on the, t- the campus of Texas A&M. And there's a lake on the library grounds that is stocked with really? bass. They did. It is, oh, yeah. So that President Bush could go fishing. So Johnny Morris and President Bush, they bring a lot of these kids together from all over Texas to come fishing, to come fish in this lake. Oh, my God. So much fun. And they were catching one fish after another. And when we invited the press to come take some pictures, and one cameraman came to me and said, here's a Navy SEAL in that lake hooking fish onto those hooks. <laughs> because I've never seen so many people catching fish in my life. It, it was really, really fun. Uh, but what a great man. There's a great story from Johnny Morris in the book about they were... Uh, and we used not to talk about this story because President Bush was afraid it would make the Secret Service look bad. Um, and that worried him right. a little bit. But I got permission from the Secret Service to tell this story. So they're fishing in Canada. They're camping right. out. This is post-presidency. President Bush goes off into the woods to visit Mother right. Nature. He doesn't come back. He doesn't come back. He doesn't come back. So finally, they go looking for him. And he's in, he's up to his neck in quicksand. What? Really? He'd fallen into a quicksand <laughs> bog. It was already up to his neck. And Johnny tells that the, I, it's in Johnny's voice. The story in the book is in Johnny's voice. He, he wrote me an email because I wasn't there, obviously. So I had Johnny tell the story. 
And Johnny said what was amazing is he was so calm and he was doing what he should do. He was staying very calm, had his arm flat, but he wasn't flailing, which would have made it worse. And he just very calmly said, I knew you would show up eventually to pull me out of this. But when they came home from Canada, President Bush said to me, if I had died, Gene, this would have made the Secret Service look really bad that they had lost a former president in in the quicksand. And I thought, well, that's not the biggest problem. Right. You would get. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. <laughs> So how does that, uh, so when a president transitions into kind of the post-presidency, I mean, I I guess uh, all presidents are different, but what does that look like in a person's life as far as moving back into, um, you know, a non-presidential life and what, what happens to, you know, individual psychology? I've, I've often thought about that because you go from being the president one day and then the next day you're a voter. Like <laughs> it is, it is amazing, and I was de- definitely had a front row seat. I definitely think it's tougher yeah. for presidents who lose reelection uh-huh. because if you know you're leaving the office, it gives you time to prepare yeah. and to adjust. But I even think for them, it has to be jarring. I mean, one day you're a powerful man right. in the world. Period. And the next day you're making your own right. coffee. And uh, the fun side of this is the Bushes sort of embraced being back in private life. Keep in mind, Evan, that for them, it had been 12 yeah. years, the eight years he was Reagan's vice president and the four years in the White House. Mrs. Bush gave up her Secret Service protection. Her son made her take it back after 9-11. Right. But she got a car. President Bush bought her a, a uh Mercury station wagon, and she went back to driving. They became obsessed with Sam's Club. <laughs> Their big discovery was Sam's Club. And I used to, I went with her a couple of times. I never went with him. They literally would get a flatbed cart and, and they bought everything in bulk. And I sort of said to them, you know, it's just the two right. of you. I swear to God, Cheetos floating around the city of Houston that President Bush would buy this huge thing of Cheetos every other week or so. They just thought Sam's Club was the best thing. He was good friends with Sam. Yeah, Walton. I was going to say, he probably knew, um, probably knew Sam Walton, right? They were probably, because yeah, Bonnie talked yeah. about Sam they, they all were, the time. And I'm I'm just putting yeah. pieces together. I'm assuming. You're, you're putting, you're a good, you're a good puzzle maker. There are things about, I, I tell a couple stories in the book about a couple of bad cooking incidents. I think they had to order pizza more than right. once because Mrs. Bush was trying to cook dinner and there was, you know, cooking fiascos. But part of them sort of embraced normalcy. Yeah. Um, President Bush is watching TV and he keeps seeing commercials for cruises, right. Princess Line Cruises. So he surprises Mrs. Bush, signs them up for one a month after they leave the White House. A month. Can you imagine being on a cruise in the Caribbean and you're in your swimsuit or your cover up and you're walking around the boat and here comes George and Barbara Bush. Um, So it's, it's, it's a sort of a funny story. Uh, They got mobbed on the ship. The captain eventually insisted the dinner in his cabin 
Sydney Dunner. But the funniest story from that trip is President Bush is in the gym. He works out, takes a sauna, comes out of the sauna, stark naked. And there's a man waiting with a camera to take his photo. It's like, you're not in the White House anymore, Mr. President. Um, but I think, uh, and then the sad part. So so the happy part of it, you do get sort of some freedom yeah. back. It He was pretty quiet that first yeah. year. It took him some time. I would say he was very introspective. It took him some time to figure out what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. He even wrote a memo to himself. He wrote a memo to himself on board the love boat. Uh, and that memo's in the book about what the things he wanted to do, the things he didn't want to do. He didn't want to try to cheapen the presidency by making a lot of money. He did give paid speeches, right. but he didn't want to sit on boards. Right. Uh, he, he And then I think he woke up one day, Evan, and decided, I'm back. I'm ready to rock and roll. And he, both he and Mrs. Bush got very, very busy in philanthropy. Big causes like cancer. Cancer was very important to them. Very active in cancer. He was a big proponent of volunteerism, his Points of Light Foundation. And then, of course, there is now the famous partnership between him and Bill Clinton, there's an entire chapter in the book called The Odd Couple. The two of them raised hundreds of millions of dollars for disaster relief around the world. It was that whole friendship, again, is a great life lesson by example. That just because you disagree with someone politically right. doesn't mean you can't find common cause, common purpose, they truly became best friends. Really? I didn't know that. They were they were that close. Uh, they were that close. Wow. They were that close. The last time President Clinton saw President Bush, it would have been the fall of 2018. Mrs. Bush had already passed, and President Clinton came to Kennebunkport to see him. He came summer. And he could tell President Bush died in November, November 30th of 2018. Mm-hmm. I think President Clinton came in September. He came to Maine and they had they had a great visit. But President Clinton just completely broke down. I walked him to his car and he was just sobbing. And he made me promise that he could see him one more right. time. He said, right. now he called me Jeannie. Now, right. Jeannie, when you know the time is near, you've got to call me. You've got to, I gotta see him one more time. It did not happen. And I felt sort of bad about it, but I, I really don't because they had such a great last visit that I think it was better that it that it ended there. They became best friends. And President Bush, there's some great stories in the book about the friendship that are pretty funny. But President Bush, some of his friends sometimes would say to him, they just didn't right. get it. And uh, later in life, and President Clinton knows that he would say this, and he loved it. <laughs> he would say to people, well, here's the deal. I'm old. I'm 90, or whatever he was at the time. I'm 88. I ran out of things to say a couple of years ago. When I'm with Bill, I don't have to worry about that because he does all the talking. <laughs> I, I love hanging out with him. I don't have to talk. I just listen to him talk. 
And that's what he used to tell people. Did he have um did he have other friends that were uh, I would say from politics, either rivals or in in from inside, you know, the RNC or or international um uh, heads yes. of state that he would spend time with that you can talk about? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely John Major, the former prime minister of Great yeah. Britain, and mm-hmm. Brian Mulroney, the former prime minister of Canada, very close. And they also went out of their way to come see him whenever they right. could. Uh, I would say in the last five years or so, for the Mulroonies, it was easy because they live in Montreal. Right. And we were in Kennebunkport, Maine in the summer. So it was, you know, close, very close. But but Prime Minister Major would fly over. Um, I know a couple times he didn't tell the truth. He pretended he had to be in the United States right. anyway. And I know, I know one time for sure he came just to see him. But the three of them were very good friends and... Um, he was actually good friends with Mikhail Gorbachev. Really? But yeah, they were they were good friends. I uh Mikhail Gorbachev came to President Bush's 80th birthday celebration, <sighs> uh, which was a huge fundraiser. We actually raised something like $50 million that night for cancer research for his library, his school. So it was a great fundraising event. But Mikhail Gorbachev came. And the event got so big, Evan, we had to move it to the Astros baseball stadium, uh, Minute Maid Park. I think the poor Astros had to go on like a two-week road trip. uh, because. But the old Astros then, a wonderful man named Drayton McLean, insisted on giving us Minute Maid Park. There's like 20,000 people at Minute Maid Park. We had this great event planned, lots of great music. The Golden Knights are going to parachute into the stadium. And President Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev are in the Astros locker room having vodka shots. (laughs) And the president of the United States, that would be George Bush, came to me and said, Gene, Wait, let's let's go. It's time to go. You need to get them out there. It was like five minutes to right. show time. And I said, Mr. President, I I don't feel really comfortable going over there and telling Mikhail Gorbachev and your dad that they can't have any more vodka <laughs> shots and we need to go out there. I says, I think you need to go tell them. And he said, I'm the president of the United States. This is not my job. I'm not going to go tell dad. That he, no, no, this is your job as his chief of staff. So, Evan, I go over there and I said, Mr. President, Mr. President, you have 20,000 people waiting for you. We need to get ready and you need to come out and take your seats. And of course, Gorbachev's interpreter, a wonderful man named Pavel, interprets this for Mr. Gorbachev and he goes, and I said to Pavel, what did he say? And Pavel looked at me and he said, in so many words, he wants me to tell you to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) And oddly, oddly, I'm very proud of that. (laughs) Well, not too many people on the planet have been told to shut up by Mikhail Gorbachev, to be fair. I, exactly. You know, I talked about that in another interview 
And I got an email from President Reagan's longtime chief of staff, a wonderful woman named Joanne Drake. And she emailed me and says, oh, my gosh, Gene, he told me to shut up. <laughs> back to Radio City Music Hall. And I emailed her back and I said, I always knew we were soul sisters, Joanne, but this proves it. Um, anyway, he was very close to Helmut Kohl of Germany, Francois Mitterrand. He had he had a black belt list of right. friends. But what I love about him he also counted among his best friends the local lobsterman, right. Sonny Hutchinson in a buckport. You know, he had he you know, he knew everybody from Farmer Head State to the local lobsterman in Maine and considered them best friends. Yeah, that so there's a couple couple points here, which is how difficult is it for a person to be the chief of staff for the the president of the United States, like how difficult is that? Because it seems to me it would be a, a, a challenge of challenges. Uh, telling a person <laughs> that is not used to being told what to do, what they need to do. I, that seems like a challenge of challenges. It is. It, it is. You are so right about that. And, uh, you know, there are a number of times he usually got his own way. There definitely were times I tried to talk him out of something. And I would say, I don't think this is a very good idea. I don't think you should do that. And he always got his own way. He would overrule me completely. Um, And a couple of times he said to me, Evan, it's interesting that you should ask that. He says, you know, when you're the president of the United States, you're constantly told you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. A lot of it's security-related, security-driven. Right. Um, and he said, "I," he says, I can actually now do more what I want to do that I'm not president. I would have these interesting conversations about sort of the do's or don'ts. So it was challenging because it was my job to say to him, you know, maybe you shouldn't do this. And now I'm trying to think of a great example for you. I'm going to think of one in a minute, but I would advise him, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. And um, a lot of times it was, it was things like he was going to surprise Mrs. Bush, something that I knew she would hate. (laughs) And I would try to talk him out of it. Uh, But sometimes it was a public appearance. Sometimes it was the secret service and I would team up against him This is a great example. Um, This isn't a big substantive example, but it's a great example. It is uh, a huge storm is coming into Kennebunkport. And President should already put away his boat, his his famous powerboat called Fidelity, was already at the pier in, in downtown Kennebunkport. It was already had been docked. But bouncing around in the bay at Walker's Point is a little pontoon boat that he had given the grandkids to use during the summer. And President Bush announces that he's going to take that boat boat around, as he put it. It's a couple, it would have been about a couple mile drive through the Atlantic to the mouth of the Kennebunk River and then take it up river and get it docked. Well, the Secret Service came to me and said, no, 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 this is not going to happen. It is too late. 
he cannot take that boat. He's going to have to risk losing the boat. I said to, to uh, his name was John, the agent, John McClellan. I said, okay, this is a security, a security issue. I will go with you and we will double team right. him, but you're going to be with me. So we go to him and John said, Mr. President, I am so sorry, but we cannot allow you to take the boat around. It is too late. And he looked at John and I agree. I supported him. I agreed with him. He looked at John. He looked at me. It just happened, Evan, to be September 2nd, which is the anniversary of his being shot right. down. And he looked at the two of us and he said, John, Gene, can't remember how many, what the anniversary was, but let's just say it was 45 years. 45 years ago today, I was shot down over Gigi Jima. If I can survive that, I can survive this. And off they went. (laughs) He took, he did take the boat around and obviously he survived. So he was, but he could be stubborn. But being his chief of staff, um, I would say if I had one complaint, and it's a minor complaint, it was such a great roller coaster ride. It was exhausting. The man had so much energy. He would get to the office at seven o'clock in the morning. There's an entire chapter in the book called I Have an Idea. It was the four scariest words he would say to me. (laughs) And there's always, you know, it was always at seven o'clock in the morning, Evan. It was never at 10 or two o'clock in the afternoon. He would come in, he would have had a pot of coffee, heard the news, read the news. Gene, I have an idea. And I would be nursing my first cup of coffee. (laughs) I'd be like, okay, I'm ready. And it would be things like, I'm going to start parachuting. I would like to parachute out of a plane. Okay. I'd take another drink of coffee. Another time it was, I want to go back to Chichijima. I would, I need to go back to Chichima. Let's figure that out. So it was a lot of fun, uh, but it was a wild roller coaster. So did he go back to Chichijima? He went back to Chichijima. He did. It was unbelievable. He went back in 2002. I did go with him. What's ironic, Evan, is our first idea was for the Navy to take him, and they were very interested in doing that. Chichijima is a volcanic volcanic island in the middle of the South Pacific. It has no airport. The only way to get there is either by helicopter or by a slow boat from Tokyo, like a 33-hour commercial boat. Uh, the Navy, was, it would have been easy for the U.S. Navy to yeah. take them because we have a huge fleet in the right. Pacific. And that have been easy to do training exercises. But because his son was president, um, President Bush didn't feel comfortable with right. that. He felt... He just didn't feel comfortable. Did he feel like it was, so sorry, I, did he feel like it would be exploitive for... Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. was right. He yeah. was right. That the, the, you know, that it, that some people might interpret it, are the taxpayers paying for this? Sure. Even though sure. he would have paid for... Anyway, we, we so we canceled right. that idea. So at the end of the day, it was the Japanese Navy who oh, took wow. up. The Japanese government, right. the Japanese Navy helicoptered us in. And as President Bush said, how ironic is it that the government that I was bombing right. 
and who, who shot me down while I was bombing them are the ones who took me back. It was an amazing journey. I think he needed closure. Yeah. It was all about his two crew members who yeah. died. And one of the things that I messed up on that trip, I'll be honest, we get, we go out on a boat and we go to the exact spot where uh, he was shot down. And there was a CNN documentary crew with us. We took Paula Zahn of CNN at that time, went with us and President Bush loved her. He allowed CNN to come and do a documentary there was, of course, the Japanese host. We had people from the American embassy. Mm -hmm. His good friend, Howard Baker, was actually the U.S. ambassador at the time, Secret Service. And we get out there, and he comes to me, and he says, I need to be by myself. I, I need a little right. time. And I, I didn't see that coming, Evan, and I should have. I wish I had. So what he did is he got into one of the uh, lifeboats by himself and he paddled from us and just spent some time in the Pacific Ocean by himself. Wow. And at one point, I, and I, said, I said, you know what? We just all need to turn around. Let's yeah. not even look at him. Let's just let him be by himself. Right. The Secret Service, of course, are having a complete nervous breakdown. And they put a couple of guys in the water, swimmers in the water. And I said, fine, but stay under the water. <laughs> I don't, don't want him. I don't want him there. But it's, it's just something he needed to do. And one of the amazing things that happened on that trip is he met a Japanese man who, who saw him shot down and saw him rescued. Really? Yes. He was... Uh, an author named James Bradley, who wrote the book Flags of Our yeah. Fathers about the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. And James was working on a book uh, called Fly oh, Boys yeah. and all the pilots shot down over Chichi Jima. Mm -hmm. Most of them were caught and executed and the commander of that island ate their hearts. Wow. He, was, he was tried for war crimes after the war and I think he was executed. President Bush liked to tease Mrs. Bush that he was almost an hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> she never thought that was very <laughs> funny. But anyway, James Bradley had found this man in, in all of his research. He was working for the American embassy because he spoke fluent right. English. So, uh, so he arranged for him to come and meet with President Bush and he was with a group of Japanese sailors on the island that day. They were up high working on something. And they saw the plane go into the water. And they're watching the whole, what, what happened. I used not to be able to tell the story without crying, but now I can. So a lot of your viewers, a lot of your veteran fans and viewers will know this, that when a man was shot down, the what they did, what his squadron did, is they would circle Yep. around the pilot. So if there was a submarine in the yep. area, the submarine could find them. So the so the planes would circle to, to mark the pilot in the water. And, uh, the, and also the Japanese kept setting out from Chichijima to go pick them up. And President Bush's squadron mates would, of course, strafe yep. them. 
would fire on them and they would hustle back to the island. Well, this went on for a couple of hours. Well, his squadron was running out of gas. And so the rule was you had to leave yourself enough gas to get back to the aircraft carrier. So they had to leave him and they dipped their Mm -hmm. wings to say, we got to go. So this Japanese man is what they're watching all this and they knew what was going on. They knew exactly what that meant when those planes dipped their wings. And so the Japanese set out to pick them up. They're about halfway between shore and President Bush in the water. He was in a life raft, by the way. He was, I think he spent three hours in the life raft. And, and then all of a sudden, out of the water came the USS Finback, plucked him out of the water, and away they go. <laughs> and, he, and so this Japanese man said to President Bush, he eventually got hired by the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo because he spoke fluent um, English. And in 1980, he one of his jobs at the American Embassy in Tokyo was to gather all the, in those days, the news would arrive on a news wire, like the Associated yeah. Press news wire, it came, come over on a wire. And one of his jobs was to gather up all the news wires and get them to whoever in the embassy, the higher ups. And he, so he's reading the news and Ronald Reagan has picked a man named George Bush to be his vice right. president. And, and this Japanese man said, he's just sort of reading the article And then there's the bio of the new vice presidential candidate. And he realized, I saw this man being shot down. Can you imagine? Yeah, that's incredible. (laughs) I saw this. I saw this. So they had a wonderful conversation. So anyway, it was an incredible trip. There's a lot about it in the book. Um, but so you brought up uh, President Reagan. So I want to touch on President Reagan a little bit, which was uh, the relationship between uh, President Bush and President Reagan. How the how did how did he t- refer to Reagan in the the after his administration? So how, what was what was his what was his feeling? His interpretation? How was he? How did he intellectualize his time as VP and the man Reagan? What uh, uh, what were his, you know, as much as you can tell me, as far as his, you know, what he thought of Reagan, what did he, what did he, what did he think of Reagan? They're very close. He, uh, it's another great example of, of two political rivals who became very close. And I would, I would love to talk about Senator Dole after right. Reagan. Um, you know, they they had a hard campaign in 1980 yeah. and said some tough things about each <laughs> other. But sort of in the 11th hour, uh, President Reagan realized that his best VP candidate was George Bush. He was not his first pick. His first pick was President Ford. But that's another right. whole story. That didn't work out. So he picked George Bush and... What happened is, 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 you know, President Bush would just talk about that President Reagan was truly one, was one of the most genuinely nice people he ever met. That he, he just thought he was great, that he was so genuine and so kind, and he knew exactly what he wanted to accomplish. Mm-hmm. 
was very good about surrounding himself with good people. One of the smartest things he did, which stunned President Reagan's campaign team, is he asked James Baker to be his chief right. of staff. James Baker is who ran President Bush's campaign against him mm. in 1980. But it just shows how smart President Reagan was. He saw in James Baker, really is one of the smartest people ever. He's an amazing man. I just saw him the other day. He's 91. He's still amazing. Uh, he still hunts, right. by the way. Uh, I can't believe it, but he's still a big hunter. But he chose James Baker to be his, his chief of staff. He also knew that George Bush, his new vice president, had a lot more world experience. Right. Than he. Yeah. <clears throat> and he sent President Bush, President Bush had a very substantive vice presidency. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was done very quietly, uh, as it right. should have been. He didn't try to get a lot of <clears throat> press, but he traveled the world on behalf of Reagan. One of the things, and again, this isn't in my book. My book just covers the post-presidency. There's certainly a lot about this in John Meacham's book, Destiny and mm -hmm. Power, but negotiated with Helmut Kohl. To, he, the, the Americans want to put, um, I'm not going to get this right, but some kind of defense weaponry in right. Germany against the Soviet Union. And it was Vice President Bush who negotiated. The Germans were so opposed to it. Uh, but President Bush, Vice President Bush got it done. So they were very, very close. And I do remember the last time President Bush saw him, he went to California. Uh, it, he, he diagnosed with mm -hmm. Alzheimer's. But in the beginning stages, President Reagan had just put out his statement to, uh, wrote a letter to America basically saying, I've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So President Bush went to see him and it was really hard. He knew who he was. He knew who President Bush was. But President Bush said you could tell he wasn't connecting right. all gotcha. the dots on that. And it was hard for him because he dearly, he loved him. Mm. He loved him. It, 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 in looking back on the Reagan administration from an out, once again, an outsider, I, I always looked at the kind of the blocking and tackling, like the ops positions of a lot of like really the hard work, the uh, vice president Bush really took on a lot of hard work as the VP. And yeah. that, yeah. that doesn't happen very often, which I thought was pretty interesting because it didn't seem like a lot of VPs were taking on a lot of really hard blocking and tackling and taking on some very significant advanced negotiations, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, in Germany. But it did strike me as he was taking on a lot of very big complex problems and the in the, the the that told me i think from you know from the historical perspective is that he could handle it and he also trusted him yeah. to not take the limelight away from the presidency because obviously we need that's a right. second term right it, that's exactly right evan and <laughs> that was sort of key is is to keep on the down low about all he did you know, he was teased. Uh, one of the things he did that vice presidents tend to do is attend funerals yeah. of representing the United States and the Soviet Union. I think three Soviet leaders died under Reagan. I right. think maybe just two. And drop off, I think maybe just two. 
No, Brezhnev, there were three. There were three who died, Brezhnev and Dropoff and someone whose name I can't remember. But President Bush, one of the things, again, not in this book, but is in previous books, is he was the first American to meet Mikhail Gorbachev. And he literally came back from when Mikhail, from that funeral uh, and said to President Reagan, he wrote him a memo on board the plane coming home that said, I think this is someone we can deal with. I think this is a man that we can, that we can make some progress. And of course he was right. And as President Bush said, um, he wrote about in letters and and going and, att- and going to all those funerals, he met a lot of future mm-hmm. leaders. You know, not only was he attending the funeral of the leader who just died, he was he was meeting the incoming mm-hmm. leader, and and then sometimes the number two who eventually would be leader. He 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 made a lot of friends in attending. Secretary Baker teased him, wanted to do a, a bumper sticker for his suitcase that said, "You die, I fall." <laughs> Because in eight years, I guess he attended a record record number of funerals. So it's funny, Evan, in The Man I Knew, he actually attended a number of funerals as, as a former president, yeah. um, sometimes traveling with uh, the current president. For instance, when uh, Rabin of Israel was assassinated, Clinton took all the presidents with him. Um he went to a couple of, pres- of funerals with President Clinton. Actually, George W. Bush sent President Clinton and his dad to attend Boris Yeltsin's funeral. I think he went to four or five funerals. Well, and he always came they, home. I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. They, go to, they, went to, they went to Boris Yeltsin's because uh, Clinton and Bush, President Bush and President Clinton went to Boris Yeltsin's and then uh, Pope John Paul's funeral together. Pope John Paul II, the funeral. And that's that that story is a lot about their friendship. Right. I'm happy to tell the story if you think I, we I think have time. We do, yeah. Uh but quickly, I'll I'll go back okay. in a minute. President Bush would come home from those funerals and he would feel guilty. He would say, Gene, I really had a lot of fun. I loved them <laughs> because they were reunion. Yeah. Okay. You know, they right. were international. Right. He would see, he would see right. everybody. And he said, oh, my gosh, I saw, you know, I saw this person, this person, that person. And so Pope John Paul II dies and the president, who was George W. Bush, uh, felt that he was such a giant of a figure on the world stage. He and Laura were going to head up the American delegation. The president was going to the funeral, but he wanted to take all the presidents with him, former presidents with him. Well, President Ford's health was not, he was already in too bad of health. And President Carter had a conflict. President Bush had a conflict too, but he told me, resolve it, resolve it. And you know, it it was easily resolved. It was a paid speech he was supposed to give. And Mm -hmm. the minute you call the host group and say, yeah, he needs to go to the Pope's funeral. They they totally got it. Actually, Mrs. Bush went and gave the funeral, the talk. I'm sorry, the talk in his place. So anyway, President Clinton's chief of staff, they had just become friends. Their friendship was growing. We're pretty good friends. President Clinton's chief of staff, a woman named Laura Graham, called me and said, Gene, President Clinton just had open heart surgery. 
and his cardiologist says he may not, under any circumstances, go to Rome. And I said, okay. You know, I couldn't figure out why she was calling me. You know, you sort of need to tell the White House that. And she said, well, he's getting ready to call your boss what he thinks, to get his opinion on whether he thinks he can go to Rome. And Laura says, President Bush, 41, has got to tell him no. Right. And I said, okay. So I go into President Bush's office. I tell him the circumstances. He says, I got this. And sure enough, our receptionist buzzes and says, President Clinton's on line one for you, sir. So President Bush picks up the phone. And here, this is what I hear, Evan. Well, Bill, I think you can go. He says, you know, we're going on Air Force One. They have that great medical unit, doctors, nurses. You know, maybe George will give you his bed for the flight over so you can lay down. He says, I think you can go. I would like for you to go. It would be fun for you to go. You know, George is going to have all these meetings, bilateral meetings, and you and I can hang out. And and so so he gets off the phone and he says, great news, he's going. (laughs) <laughs> I said, what did you just do? What part of what I said to you did you not get? And he said, I decided if, if it was okay, you went. <laughs> so then, as you can imagine, in about 30 seconds, my cell phone right. rings. And it's yeah. Laura Grant. I still remember her exact words. What the hell just happened? And I said... I, yeah, I, I did my best. And, but anyway, he went, so they went. And just the, the funny ending of the story is they land in Rome around midnight and they make the decision. The Pope is lying in state at the Vatican at St. Mm-hmm. Peter's. And they make the decision to go to the Vatican to pay their respects to the Pope lying in state. So I'm watching on TV in Houston and not only am I Catholic, my little brother is a Catholic oh. priest. And I have to tell you, Evan, I'm watching this in Houston. I didn't know they were going to the Vatican. And all of a sudden, in walks the president and Laura Bush, President Bush 41, President Clinton. It was very emotional for me to watch this on TV. What I did not know is they leave St. Peter's. It's one o'clock in the morning. And they'd all ridden, of course, together from the airport. Right. Well, the president and Laura are staying at the ambassador's residence, and President Bush 41 and President Clinton are staying at a right. hotel. Like the, the holiday. And in. the president of the United States says, yeah, <laughs> says, so this is where life could sometimes, this is something you would say to your dad, or I would have yeah. said to my dad. The president of the United States looks at them and says, Dad, do you do you all need a ride? <laughs> right. And they said, Oh, no, no, no. We have our own motorcade. Right. You go on. And it's President Bush's aide, Tom Fershette, one who told me the story. And the story's in the book, in his voice. He says, the president sort of looked at them and said again, are you sure? I can I can give you a ride. And, and Tom Fershette said, you could tell the president really did not want to leave his father right. and President Clinton at one o'clock in the morning in St. Peter's Square. But they're like, no, no, go, go. So off goes the motorcade, the White House motorcade, not a car in sight. When the, when the White House motorcade is gone, it is President Bush, President Clinton, 
their two aides and their Secret Service agents and no cars. So the Secret Service starts scrambling, trying to find out where they do have a motorcade, but where is it? Where the hell is it? FYI, it was out on the street. There wasn't enough room Mm -hmm. for it to get into St. Peter's Square. So they had to run out there, bring them in. But while they're doing all that, the two presidents are just talking. Another delegation pulls up, gets out of their cars, a little surprised to find George Bush and Bill Clinton in St. Peter's Square at one o'clock in the morning. And so they ask if they can take photos with them. And, and they're like, of course, yes, great to meet you. So one of the Secret Service agents sort of sidles over to President Bush and said, Mr. President, this is the Iranian delegation. Oh, of course. <laughs> Randy, Iranian. We would like wait, wait. Let's go. <laughs> we don't have diplomatic relations with yeah. them. Get in the car. Gene, <laughs> anyway. well, I, I know I want to be very respectful of your time. I have a couple like quick questions if you got if you got a couple more minutes. I don't Yes, I do, of course. Um did he have any I, I and I I'm going to preface this question because I I I think I have a sneaking suspicion. So I was watching the, I believe, uh, HBO uh, short docu documentary, following him around, uh, following him around, and having some interviews about uh, President H. W. Bush. It, I, I forget what the name of it was, but I was watching it. I think it might have just been Bush or something like that. I think forty one. I think the documentary is called yeah. forty one, and it's been yeah. several years since I saw this. So, uh, but when they brought up Ross Perot. I <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh, and I just couldn't help but laugh because I was like, "Man, you can still feel the heat coming off that name in that interview." It felt like to me. <laughs> yeah, I you know someone the other day asked me, uh, "Did he blame Ross Perot for losing the election, nineteen ninety two?" And I just said, yes. Yeah. And the interviewer said, well, do you want to expand on that? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, um, he did not like Ross right. Perot, Evan. And Ross, you know, he does, Perot got 19% of the yeah. vote in 1992. Yeah. And you don't, you know, you don't know. What if it made a difference? Whatever, with those 19% votes all gone to 41, you know, it, part, Probably, yeah, I, I, I think there would have been at least 17. Yeah, I, I think there would have been 17. percent I mean, it's just me looking at it. I mean, because they're he split the Republican vote, that's what he did. Yeah, he split the yeah. Republican vote, that's exactly right. The, the same thing happened to Al Gore, quite yeah. frankly, in 2000 yeah. on a lesser scale. If Ralph Nader, right. Ralph Nader was a third party candidate that year. And I, I've read some interesting articles about this. Ralph Nader did, he got like 2% yeah. of the vote. But uh, he would, they definitely think Gore would have won Florida if Ralph Nader had not been on the ballot. And that would have given him the election to doubt. So third party candidates are problematic. Yeah. And yeah. you're right. He, President Bush, one of the things I learned from him, Evan, gosh, that man does not hold a grudge. Really? Doesn't oh gosh it just he in in Mrs Bush it used to drive Mrs Bush crazy you, you know Mrs Bush said to me I would love to be more like him but 
she once said to me, but we should still be mad at that person. <laughs> I can't remember who she was about. But he, he didn't hold a grudge and he could find the good in everybody. And I love that about him. He could find the good in everybody. Ross Perot, he went to his grave still looking for the good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought so. I, I did. I thought so. It's like, man, if there's one guy that he might actually hold some animus towards uh, till the very end, that that might be it. Uh, and Gene, it's been it's been a great it's been a great time. I, I've, I've loved talking to you about uh, uh, President H.W. Bush. He's he's truly one of my most uh i think iconic and uh one of the guys that i really look for i think and consistently look for as far as how do you template your life uh how do you look for uh, opportunities to kind of accelerate the way that you're doing uh your individual life your professional life i think there's a lot to be learned just by watching people um and I, I look forward to reading your book. I haven't read it yet, so I, I don't. Well, I'm, read the book. And Evan, I hope that, so here's the book. Be sure to well. read it. Um, it is a template for mm-hmm. life. And I hope that none of the people I've talked to in the last two weeks, the book came out a few weeks ago. I hope none of them are watching. You really, you're such, this has been such a great conversation because, oh my gosh, you get him. You get him. And what and I love that. It has been really fun talking to you. And it's not that the others didn't get him, but not like you have. You and what what you're going to love when you read this book is your everything you feel about him and everything you think you know about him is right. That's interesting. I I I uh I look forward to it. I, I really do. I really look forward to reading it. I I can't thank you enough because it's been a pleasure. I I really wanted to meet him before he passed. Like that, that was uh, I, one of my friends uh, works for um, uh, Bush Junior. For lack of a better, <laughs> George Bush. Yeah, no, forty three. We call them forty one and forty three. Yeah, so that's, 40, that's 41, how you 40. do it. And I was, I was pushing him so hard. I was like, man, I just want to meet him. Just, you know, be, this was several years ago, uh, but not like stalker esque. I was just looking at it from the perspective of as a guy that, you know, runs a company. I love politics. It's, it's so interesting to me as far as politicians and politics and history and individual influence. And how do you become a better leader? How do you become a better manager? All these different things that, that I think people like this encompass, and one final question before I take off, because I got a, I got a two couple minutes here before you leave. The the one thing I was um, I'm really interested in is like is uh, the complexities of this and how these guys are putting together you know their life. I suppose does it did it bother you when people blatantly misrepresented who the person was in uh, in the news or because obviously. The, the media is all over the place and yeah, they can be so negative and they can be so inaccurate. Yeah. Did it bother you? Did it bother him uh, when there was just blatant misrepresentation as far as who they were? It bothered me a yeah. lot. And as a former newspaper reporter, it, it, I do, uh, 
God, we got to get back to telling right. the truth and and to only report on what you know. So it definitely bothered me when they misrepresent him or talking heads would just say, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and they have no idea what they're talking about. They haven't done their right. homework. Again, it's one of the reasons why I wrote mm. the book. On President Bush, what was so interesting, and, and I talk about this in the book, it didn't bother him didn't at bother. all when they, about yeah. him, about his son. <laughs> oh, my really? God. Evan, the most, and I love that George W. Bush was president of the United States for eight years. It was probably the eight toughest years of my being chief oh, of staff. Wow. Because his father took everything personally. If you said one tiny thing against (laughs) his son, I mean, he would sit in my office and cry. And 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 there are a couple of times I sent a message to the White House. Uh, The one Andy Card was, uh, and a great friend, was, was 43's chief of staff for like six years, I think. So I would reach out to Andy Card and say, could the president call his dad right. today? <laughs> and, and he would. He always would. Uh, but, oh, my gosh. Honestly, Evan, the media could report that 41, I think they did report this, was an alien from right. Mars. And, 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 and actually, there was one report that Condi Rice, I think, was 41's love child or something. I don't know. Yeah. There was so much junk like that. National Enquirer and President Bush would just laugh, or even the, the mainstream media is like, whatever. But from 2000 to 2008, if there was one negative thing said about George W. Bush or about the governor of Florida, oh, Jeb yeah. Bush, the sky was right. falling. And I would say, turn your TV, <laughs> turn TV off. And, you know, I would hide things from him. I would hide breaking news stories from him. The problem is the man could Google with the best right. of them. So, and he said, why didn't you tell me blah, blah, blah? I said, well, how do you how do you know this right. happened? How do you know this person said this? Well, I found it on the <laughs> Internet. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting because I, I can totally get that. If, if like. I don't care, you know. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty absorbent. I can take whatever, right? But you, <laughs> you, you throw mud at the kids. That's that's a totally different level. That's very emotional. It's, that's right. It's, totally yeah, different level. Totally different level. So I can get that. Gene, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, Evan, it's been my absolute pleasure. It's been one of the things I've really wanted to do uh, the last several years is talk to somebody that's been close to them. And uh, I, I, I'll go out and find the book. Uh, where, where is it? So I would imagine Amazon. You should be able to find it in any bookstore. You can buy it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, but it should be in, in your local bookstore as well. And if the bookstores in Salt Lake City are not carrying it, let yeah. me know. And call and yell. I'll, at I'll, send, so. I'll send somebody out to get it today because I've got a, a week in Northern Idaho uh, coming up where I'll need something good to read. So I'm going to read. Okay. It. All right. If, Enjoy uh, it. If, if, but I'll have to send you a copy so you can sign me a copy and send it back. I'll send you a book plate. <laughs> send me your okay. email. I'll send you a book Please. plate. 
but I want to talk to you after you've read okay. the book. Just put, not on not on air. Just okay. call me. I would love to talk to you after you read the book. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gina. I appreciate it. Just, just you and I. Okay. Right. Thank you, Evan. This was a Great. lot of Thank fun. You.